0: Luke 19, uh, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to guest of a sinner, to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost.
1: Thanks, John. Um, So we're called indescribable about the extraordinary grace of God. Um, And if you've missed the first couple, uh, thanks to Carl's work and... and, uh, Um, To Neil's work as well, you can look at the website, the the old website is still running, we're we're about to flick the switch in a couple of weeks over to the new one, Um, but you can also check Facebook, Carl's been uploading the the messages on Facebook, but we also have a podcast now, Um, so if you go into your iTunes podcast or Stitcher or what's the other one Carl, something pod, Pocketcast. um, and search for Yas community Baptist Church you can find and carl 's working on getting a back catalog there, but the last couple of weeks are up there as well on the podcast so thanks to all of those people um, who who support the church in various ways like that, and um, many other things happening as well, let me pray, and then let 's uh, dig into god 's word this morning. Mm. so Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now this wouldn 't be just a going through the motions, a ticking of the sermon box, but we pray that you would make us attentive to your spirit. Um, as your word, the, the, the Scriptures said from 1 Corinthians this morning, that's the spirit that reveals things of God to us. And so we pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that your spirit would reveal the truth of your word to us this morning, that your spirit would reveal truths about who you are and who you call us to be and what you've done for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, uh, the, uh, the message is entitled, Transformed by Grace. And so we've been talking about grace, and we've been talking about grace been equaling love and acceptance apart from our behavioural performance. So God loves us and accepts us apart from our own performance, apart from our behavior. And last week we talked about grace, meaning that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, There's no place for us to condemn and there is no condemnation, no punishment, no sentence coming for us who believe in Jesus because uh, Jesus bore that on the cross for us. Uh, And this morning I want to begin with telling a story and we've got a little bit of a video to finish this story. But this is a story of uh, some little blue people Uh, I'm not exactly sure how big they are, uh, but they've been chased by an evil, wicked wizard. Um, And you may have guessed, if you haven't already, uh, I'll fill you in, that this is a story about the Smurfs. Uh, And and so I was watching... kind of in and out, uh, our boys were watching uh, the latest Smurfs movie during our Friday night pizza and movie night a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was kind of captured by this scene we're about to watch. And so just to to fill you in, um, the Smurfs are running from Gargamel the Eagle evil, wizard whose whose life's purpose seems to be to destroy the Smurfs. Um, I don't know enough to know why, but um, that's what he's about. And so they're they're having this kind of chase scene down a river, and the Smurfs have built this kind of raft that has this propeller thing at the back, and Gargamel is chasing them on a log, uh, and then they end up going over a waterfall, um, and, and Gargamel is in trouble. Gargamel is going to drown, and is crying out for the Smurfs to help him. Um, and so I just uh, encourage you to watch this scene, and, and this relates, this isn't just random, this relates to what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, so thank you.
0: Yeah, we, we did it! I always take help. help! Help! All right! We're still on course! Double time it, Hepti! Help! I'm sinking! Please! I'm afraid of turtles!
1: Uh, guys, what's he up to now?
0: help forget that guy my cat can't swim we gotta help him are you crazy why because it's what i do listen to him but he's our sworn enemy he is literally a villain i can i can change and i literally wear my heart on my sleeve okay that's your shoulder not a sleeve i like your tattoo we're doing this smurfette talk some sense into him Rainy, I hate Gargamel more than anyone, but we're Smurfs. We do the right thing. Thank goodness for it! And we have to save him. I just want to go on record that I'm decisively against this. Whatever. We're doing it. Sounds awesome! Use this! Grab I don't know about this. You won't regret it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Such a kind Smurf. Are you okay?
1: Oh, I'm okay. Wet, a little tired, kind of waterlogged. Thanks for asking, but I'm still evil, so...
0: (laughs) Enjoy (laughs) drowning.
1: So in a movie like this, the, 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 the shock is for comic value, but what's the incongruent, what's the thing that is jarring about the end of that scene? He's still evil. He didn't, he didn't change. One of the things he said while he was begging was, I can change. I can change. And then at the moment of his rescue, he's still evil and swats the Smurfs off of the raft. And so Gargamel received undeserved grace. He did nothing to deserve being rescued, but the Smurfs rescued him, but he didn't change his behavior. He stayed exactly the same in response to grace. And so Gargamel's story is actually a little bit like a story that Jesus told, Uh, not involving little blue people uh, and wicked wizards, uh, but what we'll often call the, the, the story or the parable of the unmerciful servant. And so we're going to get to what John read to us this morning, but we can read the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. And so Jesus uses this story to to teach uh, those who are listening to him about forgiveness and about what it means to be a recipient of grace and and someone who's called to give grace in response. And so Matthew eighteen, chapter sorry Matthew chapter eighteen, verse twenty three, Jesus says, "Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants." As he began to the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master offered that he and his wife, sorry, his, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. And, and so, this man had a debt that he could not repay. It's recorded there as 10,000 talents. And, and just to capture the enormous size of his debt, I did, did some sums, and, and I discovered that one talent equals about 20 years of the average laborer's wage. One talent. And so this man owes 20, uh, sorry, 10,000 talents. And so that's 200,000 years of the average wage of the time that this man owes his master. And so this this number is a little bit rough, but if you you base it off of Australia's uh, median wage, that means that in this time, this man owes his master about $14 billion. This is an astronomical debt. Jesus' listeners would have been shocked at the figure that he mentions, 10,000 Talents is owed. This is not just a debt that this man lacks the capacity to repay. No one can repay a debt this size by working it off. His debt is enormous. He couldn't repay it in a hundred lifetimes. And so this debt is symbolic of our own debt before God. We've talked already in this series that The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is uh, symbolic of how far short we have fallen. We owe God a debt that we couldn't possibly repay. And so Jesus goes on in the story in verse 26 and he says, The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. And so when we know how huge the debt actually is, we know how ridiculous and futile that begging is. It is impossible for this man to ever realistically imagine repaying his debt. But it says the servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. And so Jesus' listeners, understanding what 10,000 talents of gold really meant, would have been shocked that anybody could ever possibly cancel that kind of debt. This is not just kind of writing down, writing off a bad investment. This is $14 billion of debt. And the Master just cancels it and lets him go. This cancelling of the debt is not based on his behaviour, it is not based on his performance, it's not because he begged. This cancelling of the debt is based on the mercy and the grace of the Master. Because grace equals love and acceptance apart from performance. And so this is symbolic of our own debt of sin being cancelled by Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Any begging, any attempts to win favour with God in our own effort are as futile as this man begging and, and hoping to repay $14 billion with just a little bit more time. Keep in mind, this is a, a time where lotto doesn't exist and the stock market uh, doesn't exist. So there's no hope of this man making a ridiculously good investment and somehow getting the money back. His only hope of paying it back is working it. It would take him 20 years to pay one ten thousandth of the debt. And so all of our begging before God, hoping to to be made righteous in our own efforts, is futile, but God has cancelled his debt. God has cancelled our debt. And so this parable isn't so much about that though. This is symbolic of those truths, but the parable is really about how did he respond? And the question that this parable asks us is how will we respond to God's grace, to God's cancelling of our debt? How will you respond to grace is the question of this parable. And so Jesus tells of this man's response in the verses that follow. He says, "But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. "Pay back what you owe me," he demanded. His fellow servants fe- fell to his knees and begged him, "Be patient with me and I will pay you back." But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could not pay the, uh, sorry, until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. And so this man received grace, but he was completely unchanged by it. His fellow servant makes exactly the same plea he made and is unmoved. His fellow servant, it says, owed him 100 denarii. That is, in today's terms, a few dollars, or maybe with inflation, a few hundred dollars. insignificant, ridiculously small compared to $14 billion compared to 10,000 talents. And so the, the, the servant who received mercy is unchanged and even the moment of his fellow servant saying exactly the same words he said before the master who cancelled his debt doesn't jog his mind to think, wait a minute, maybe I should behave differently now. And so those who saw it were rightly shocked by it. It's exactly the same as Gargamel's response to the grace of the Smurfs, but there's no comic value here. It's tragic. And so he chose to keep counting the debt of others, and ultimately his own debt was then counted. We cannot really receive grace and then not extend grace to others. We cannot really have received grace and not be transformed by it. You see, God gives his grace freely to all, but if we want to keep counting debts, if that's the way we want to live our life, if we want to keep counting debts and who owes us and what we owe, then God will let us live that way. If we want to keep counting our debts, God will allow us to be treated according to our debt. And so we cannot partake of a kingdom that is shaped in its very essence by grace if we aren't shaped by grace as well. It's not that we need to perform to keep grace because grace equals love and acceptance apart from our performance and behavior. But it's that if we're not shaped by grace, if we're not transformed by grace, then then that's evidence that we've never really truly received the grace to start off with. Grace in its very nature transforms us. It completely transforms our performance and behavior. And so Jesus told this story with all the shock value of Gargamel swatting the Smurfs off the raft. This story was told by Jesus to shock his listeners into realizing how measly and pathetic it is of us to to hold others to account when we have had such an enormous debt go free. See, any debt that is possibly owed us, any debt of sin or misbehavior or even financial debt that is owed us in life is ridiculously pittance compared to what Jesus has paid for us the debt that's been cancelled for us on the cross. And so this story should shock us, just as the the Gargamel swatting the Smurfs' moments off should, should shock us. And so the story that John read this morning, the story of Zacchaeus, tells a completely different story. It tells the story of yet another Gargamel but of a Gargamel who responded in a different way to grace. Just to refresh our, our memory from Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 4, we're introduced to this other Gargamel, this other Gargamel named Zacchaeus, and it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And so this introduction, this is a true story. This is not a, not a parable anymore or a, an illustration from Jesus. This is a story of a real man named Zacchaeus encountered with Jesus. And so the story gives us a few details about who Zacchaeus is. And firstly, he's a Jew. His name, Zacchaeus, marks him as having been someone from Jewish heritage and he lives in a town named Jericho, which is not far from Jerusalem. He is a Jew, but he's also a tax collector, which means he's a traitor to his own people. He's serving the Roman Empire in collecting taxes on behalf of the oppressor from the oppressed. And and it says he's a chief tax collector, which means he's in charge of others, or that is at least very good at what he's doing. The other sign that he's very good at extorting money from the people is that he's wealthy. Not that wealth is bad, but if your means of wealth is collecting taxes from your people that are owed to Rome, the indication here is that he skimmed a fair bit off the top for himself. And so though this man Zacchaeus is described as wealthy... He's just like the man in the parable. He's just like Gargamel. He has an enormous debt that he could never possibly repay. Not a financial debt, but a debt of sin. And so in 5 to 7, it says, though, when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Jesus' action here is that of love and acceptance for someone who did not deserve it. We, we don't really grasp in our culture the, the significance of table fellowship, of hospitality in someone's home. In this time, they, no one would eat with someone unless they were able to affirm that person. And so the way that I would show that Abraham's in the right and Carl's in the wrong is, is that I'd be prepared to go and eat with Abraham and, and spend time in his house, but I would never go to Carl's house. That's not actually true of these people. Hopefully you understand that. Carl makes these delicious, slow-cooked like golden syrup dumplings. Um, just not a hint there at all, Carl. But. Very good. <laughs> But so table fellowship was a way of affirming a person or rejecting a person as good or bad. And so Zacchaeus, though he was wealthy, living in a Jewish city of Jericho as a tax collector and as a wealthy tax collector, would have been a complete outcast in Jewish society. He would have been welcome at nobody's table, much less anyone ever dreaming of going to Zacchaeus' table especially a prominent religious leader. But when Jesus stops at Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. This is an enactment of unmerited love and acceptance that's not at all based on Zacchaeus' performance or behavior. It's an act of pure grace. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Everybody knew who Zacchaeus was. Everybody was outraged by this grace. But it says in verses 8 to 10, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times that amount. Jesus said to him, "Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man did not come to sorry, the Son of Man did come to seek and to save what was lost." And so Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' grace in completely opposite fashion to Gargamel and the unmerciful servant. And this is unprompted by Jesus. Jesus did not lecture Zacchaeus into changing his behavior. Jesus did not say to Zacchaeus, now that I've uh, poured out my grace upon you by eating in your home, your life has to look different in these ways now. This is a spontaneous response from Zacchaeus. You'll notice as well, though, that uh, the criticism of the crowd leads to this response in some ways to Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus doesn't respond to the crowd. Zacchaeus doesn't say to the crowd, look, I'm going to do this and I'm going to set my life straight. His response is completely directed towards Jesus. It's a response to Jesus, not the criticism of the crowd. And so, unprompted by Jesus, he gives away half of his possessions to the poor. And he repays everyone he's ever cheated, but not just what he cheated them out of, four times as much. If you lived in Jericho that day, you have kind of be like, oh, I want to find somewhere that Zac- Zacchaeus cheated me out of something. Because that's a good return on investment. And so Jesus' response to the behavior that, that uh, Zacchaeus presents in response to grace is that salvation has come to this house. So the unmerciful servant ended up paying the price for his debts because he wanted to keep counting debts. But Zacchaeus, whose debt was just as great in in a sense of sinfulness, gets spoken of over his life by Jesus. Salvation has come to this house. And, And so what we see in Zacchaeus should be the natural response to grace. The grace that Jesus offered Zacchaeus, in undeserved love and acceptance, transformed him. It transformed his behavior. It transformed Zacchaeus not just into a recipient of grace, but a conduit or a pipeline of grace to others. And this is the effect that grace should have on every single one of us. Grace truly received makes us a Zacchaeus, not a Gargamel. Grace truly received, transforms our behavior. This is the effect of grace. This is the outcome of grace. Paul, an apostle who wrote so much about grace, described the outcome of grace in his life using these terms in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 to 10. He speaks of a life, his own life, transformed by grace. And so he says of himself in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Paul is saying, I had a debt that I could not possibly repay. Paul was the one who stood as the official at the stoning of Stephen to death early in Acts. Paul was responsible for zealously persecuting Christians, for arresting them and authorizing their execution. Paul had a debt that he could not possibly repay, and he did not deserve grace. But he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. And so this morning I want to encourage you with Paul's words that you, you let God's grace to you be not without effect. In other words, let God's grace have its full effect in your life. Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So next week we're going to talk a little bit about the empowerment of grace in our lives but, but this week I want us to capture that transformation in Paul's behavior in response to grace. Paul was someone who strove to destroy the followers of Jesus but then his behavior is turned, transformed by grace that he becomes someone that works harder than anybody else to establish the church of Jesus. Grace, the effect of grace on our lives is to completely transform our behavior. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, the same Paul writes of grace, and this is a verse we looked at before about grace, our salvation not been through works but through grace. And so in verse 8 he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast and so this is the foundational thing we discussed about grace that grace our salvation is not through works it is a completely free and undeserved gift from God it's his love and his acceptance and his blessing and his empowerment and his forgiveness because of who he is and not because we deserve it apart from our performance and behavior. But then it goes on and says, not by works so that no one could boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. Good works are not the means of keeping God's grace, but they are the natural product of someone being truly transformed by the grace they have received. As I touched on this in our first part of this series, grace is like a safety net under a tightrope. Under the law, we're like trying to walk across a tightrope 10 stories high and if we make a mistake, it's all over. And as I said a few weeks ago, I don't know about you, you might have a lot more courage than me, but I am not going to walk across a tightrope 10 stories high without a safety net. And so under the law, our our performance is essentially crippled. But grace provides us this safety net that we're free to perform. It would still be a little bit frightening, I guess, to spend 10 stories up with a safety net, but if that safety net was just a few inches under the tightrope, I would give it a go. And not that like performing for God is as hard as, as walking across a tightrope, but, but grace is the security we have to perform and to behave according to God's desires for us. As I said, next week we're going to touch on empowerment, but, but this week I want us to grab. We're not saved by good works, We're saved by grace, but that very grace transforms us into people that produce good works. I read in one of the commentaries that I read while studying for this series that no one is saved by good works, but no one is saved without them. That everyone who is truly saved, good works will be manifest in their life. For some that's a a moment like paul a moment like zacchaeus for some that's the 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 working of god's grace in our life over time that we're transformed from from one person into another but but no one is saved without good works because the natural product of the grace by which we are saved is a transformation in our behavior that we produce good works grace is our safety net that we might step out and be performers of good works for God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 some of you may be familiar with this verse but Paul has a particular language he uses to describe the transformation that happens in our life because of grace and so in 2 Corinthians 5.17 he says, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so profound is the transformation that happens in our life when we come to Jesus, when, when grace becomes a part of our experience that, that Paul uses the language of being a completely new creation that there is no connection between the old and the new, that we are completely made new. Uh, the familiar, uh, more modern-day language, perhaps, which comes from you know, a reference to a different por- part of the New Testament is that phrase, born again. That we are born again, a new and totally different person when we come into contact with God's grace. And so I began this series by talking about grace being a whole new world, that grace is not a a paradigm or a worldview that gets bolted onto the performance paradigm, that grace is not a, a program that can be installed into the software of performance, but that grace is a completely separate way of relating to God and to one another that grace is a whole new world. And and so this week I want to add to that the idea that in this whole new world we become a whole new creation. We are made completely new. We can't operate under the old paradigm in the new world. We can't operate under performance and counting debts and behaving according to the world in the whole new world, because we're completely transformed by grace. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Ephesians four twenty-two to 24 Paul talks more about this idea of being a new creation. And he says this, uh, reminding the church in Ephesus what he had taught them about being transformed, becoming new creations. And he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul is saying, he's reminding the Ephesians church, remember I taught you that when you come to Jesus, when you receive the free gift of his grace, you're a new creation. So put off that old self. Make the choice to not live according to the old untransformed self, but put on the new self. He's talking about making an active choice to live according to the identity that we have in Jesus, not according to the sinful identity we have through Adam. Adam being the first person to lead humanity into sin with his wife Eve. And so grace is a supernatural transformation that happens in our life, but Paul also says, put off the old... And put on the new, put off the old and put on the new. so grace should transform us just as we can watch the the, the clip of Gargamel and we can laugh because it is funny if it's blue people and a wicked wizard. But it's not funny when it becomes the unmerciful servant. It's tragic. And it's not funny when it becomes us. Grace should transform us. And so elsewhere in, in 2 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, not to receive God's grace in vain. Not to be like the unmerciful servant to be have the opportunity to have our debt cancelled by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but yet not lay claim to it. Through being transformed by God's grace. Allow God's grace to transform you. Allow God's grace to shape who you are and the way you behave. If we're truly shaped by grace, we become a conduit, a a pipeline of God's grace to others. Grace should shape everything. Um, Over the last couple of weeks, I've I've spoken about the the day in which Sweden kind of shifted from one side of the road to the other and and that's been a, a metaphor of how we shift from from kind of performance-based thinking to grace-based thinking, and I'm going to continue the road theme as we finish this morning. But I want you to think of exit ramps and highways, um, which, because we live in yes, it's um, a helpful. Um, we all live quite close to one of the major highways in Australia, and see so the thing I want you to think about with that is is that our patterns of behaviour become highways. If we live according to the ways of the world, if we live according to a performance paradigm, if we live according to counting debts and behaving in particular ways, those become a highway of behavior in our life. That is the easiest pathway for us to follow. um, Neurologists will talk about neural pathways and brain pathways and, and things like that that repeated behaviors become easier. It's almost like an autopilot. It's why you can think I've got to go to my bedroom to grab that book and arrive in your bedroom and forget why you were there because your brain has a neural pathway that you can hit play on that says walk to the bedroom. And then your mind can go off and think about other things while it's doing that. And so our patterns of behavior become highways. And that's what our old self is like. They're the highways. And so if we're trapped in a, in a performance paradigm behavior, if we're trapped in a accounting debts behavior, if, if we understand theologically that God has canceled our debt, but yet when someone slights us somehow, we cannot let go of that. That's an old self pattern of behavior. Then we need to develop some off-ramps. We need to develop some change patterns of behavior with God's grace empowering us. And the thing about off-ramps is, in in a neural pathway sense, in a renewing of the mind sense, is they will at first seem like a dirt road that's difficult to find while you're flying along the highway. If you are shaped in your patterns of behavior by the ways of the world, it will be hard to find the off-ramps. But let me encourage you, as you continue to choose to let grace transform you, those off-ramps will become the highway. That, that God with his grace as you choose to partner with him in putting off the old self and putting on the new self shaped by grace that, that the grace pathways in your life will become the highway. That long gone will be the thoughts of counting debts. Long gone will be behavior shaped by the old person and behavior shaped by sin. And so if you're trapped In an untransformed life. If grace if you can't honestly say this morning that grace shapes everything about me, and I don't think there's any of us that can honestly say that grace shapes everything about us, as we've been transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus, let's let's choose to take the off ramp of grace. Let's choose to make it the highway in our life. To use the metaphor I've been using before, let's shift from driving on one side of the road to the other. And so this morning I'm going to invite our worship team to, to rejoin us and I'm going to invite us all to stand. Um, if you're able, if, if you are unable to stand um, or unwilling, that's, that's your choice. And so grace means that you are completely loved and accepted by God apart from your performance and behavior. Grace means that you are completely loved and accepted by God apart from your performance and all behavior. Grace means that there is no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, uh, as we worship to to finish off this part of our time together, and as we lead into that, I want to pray that God would transform us afresh this morning by His grace. That He would make more complete in each and every one of our lives the transformation of grace in our life. Where there are areas of our life where there's a highway of old self-behavior, I want to pray that, that God would lead us to the off-ramps, lead us to develop uh, what Romans 12 calls renewed minds, that our pattern of thinking and being would be reshaped by grace. Um, So let me pray and then let's worship together and invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister grace, transforming grace into each of our lives. And so Jesus... Father, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your grace. I just pray that you, this, this morning, bring us into fresh awareness of the enormity, the size of your grace, the $14 billion debt that we couldn't repay, that you cancelled for us on the cross. And I pray that you would make us full recipients of your grace this morning that we would be transformed in every single way by the gift of your grace. That we would be as Zacchaeus, not as the unmerciful servant. That we'd be as Paul who was transformed by your grace, not as Gargamel. And Father, I pray this morning that by your Spirit, you you reveal to us old patterns of thinking and behaving that exist in our life. And that as we worship you this morning, that you would create new off-ramps, new highways of grace-shaped behavior. In Jesus' name.